Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB. <laughs> Badass Women's Hour with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. Femba can go to hell. Topical talk, outspoken opinion and inspirational conversation on the hour of Badass Power. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators but no one compares. Minter, Campbell and Sexton are your all new Saturday night super squad. Badass Women's Hour on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. One, two, three. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour. Three women, one hour, all the opinions we can muster and a whole load of badass here on Talk Radio. I'm Harriet Minter and I'm joined by my co-hosts Emma Sexton and Natalie Campbell. And today we are going to be talking about the show Three Girls. I don't know if you've seen it on BBC this week and our reactions to it. We've also got Eleanor Mills, editorial director of the Sunday Times, in to tell us all about her career. And we'll be answering your badass balls ups, the questions that you really need some help and advice with. But as always, we're starting off with the news stories that have got us talking this week. Emma, you are kicking us off and it's all about avocado. Tell us. Yeah, there was a, an article uh, this week on uh, the Huffington Post about uh, a millionaire. So he's an Australian millionaire called Tim Gurner. He's an Australian property mogul. And he made a comment basically going that millennials would have a better shot at becoming homeowners if they stopped buying avocado on toast. He's basically saying, you know, when I was trying to buy my first home, I wasn't buying smashed avocado for, you know, £11 and four, <laughs> coffee, four copies of £2.30 each. And I think he's kind of got a point, and especially seeing as I saw a financial advice <laughs> this week uh, who basically told me that in the next 10 years I've got to make 1.2 million pounds to have the lifestyle I want I kind of think that as millennials should be not spending their money on avocado no. on do you know what? brunch gets such a bad rep brunch is not that bad and also I so I have been trying to look at buying a house for a few months a few months a few years now and whenever I speak to people of my parents generation about this they go well Harriet when I was your age, I wasn't off gallivanting. I wasn't going on holidays. <laughs> oh, I wasn't going out for brunch. I wasn't. And they failed to mention that when they were my age, the cost of a house was roughly four times their salary, as opposed to roughly 11 times the average salary, which is what it is now. So I'm sorry, if I can't have anywhere to live, I might want to cheer myself up <laughs> with a little bit of avocado and toast occasionally. That's what I think. Matt, what do you think? So I'm laughing because it's a story of my life. I'm like, I live in a spiral of eating eating avocado on toast expensive flat white and i look at a bill like you know a, a day in one of the members clubs that we're at and it's 60 quid on a bad day it could be 100 i'm like this is why i have not got a home because i do this to myself but also we're in a really privileged position where we have free cash where we can say actually we're out free we're cash, gonna you free cash, cash. <laughs> but we do. i work for my money <laughs> <laughs> if you can afford to go and buy yourself a lunch anyway then you are you're doing a lot better than most of the people out there and particularly most of the young kids who come in coming into London now they're on starting salaries of 19 grand they have no extra cash or they're not having a luxury life of brunching every single day this isn't their reality no but what people don't tell you is that actually when you are 18 or 19 if you just put away 10% mm. of your earnings into a pension by the time you're my age <laughs> you wouldn't be having to make so much money because that would have yeah. accumulated and that will work a lot harder for you so I'm kind of like millennials just like maybe like just Less, one less avocado but no, on a serious a point we have discussed this before I I do think it's important we should learn about money a lot earlier and you know what we should be saving if we want to own a home or not just own a home just have a decent standard of living and you know we are in a privileged position privileged position of being able to 
live a certain life because we you know, we've put in the work but the reality is i cannot afford to buy a home well i mean also like we need to be realistic we've put in the work and also we are in our mid-30s some of us emma i'm not mid i haven't got there yet oh i hate to hit you with it baby you are but the reality is if you're kind of in your early 20s <laughs> and you're coming into london and you're on an internship and people aren't paying you properly you're working too i mean i worked two or three jobs when I was in my early 20s Same. and there wasn't spare cash to save it would have been nice to save something but actually it went on your rent it went on your bills it went on buying some food and that was pretty much it I know I'm going to sound really frivolous but I started drinking champagne in uni and it's always been my uh, I one. feel like now you're just not in the same plane as the rest had of us in this. a completely different student lifestyle to anybody no, else I was poor, I we used to pull our tips um, from the bars we worked in me and my mate Vicky and I drank champagne. I did, snake bite was a drink that people use. I didn't. I don't understand what that thing is. Um, so I decided that I would drink champagne. Um, Lambrini's and- really cheap, you know. Mate, no, <laughs> no. Um, and it so that that has so I. But the, the serious point is knowing who I am and what I like. I have worked those three jobs or the four jobs to make sure that I can give myself the things I want and going back to your point of I can't afford a home so actually I treat myself with what I call micro luxuries so I wouldn't give up my avocado on toast I might make it at home to save some money but there are things that I give myself in life because I just I, I don't see a I don't see a possible future right now where I can have that home or all of these things that put me in the, in the category of being a grown-up and I'm only 33 so I'm not anywhere near mid. <laughs> and I think that is the point right which is actually when you can't see how you're going to get there and you're not a multi-millionaire whose family are going to give you a massive deposit like the guy who decided to lecture millennials about avocado on toast <laughs> um, actually you've got to take those luxuries where they yeah. come. So our second story for this week now what has been interesting you? So the second story um, is about friendship and what friends can and can't say. So Sophia Coppola and Kirsten Dunst are friends. They've uh, done a movie together. Sophia Coppola asked Kirsten Dunst if she would consider losing some weight for this role. Kirsten, rightly, based on their friendship, pushed back and said, no, it's not happening. Where I kind of dispute the article is like Kirsten Dunst's response is, well, you know, I'm eating fried chicken every day and a Mackie D's because we're in the Mid-South. Okay, whatever. Um, but it got me thinking about how honest you are with your friends. And we were talking about it and I would tell my friend if she'd put on weight and she needed to lose weight. But that's based on the fact that my friends that had put on weight basically told me off when they looked back at pictures and they were like why did you not tell me that I was putting on weight and my response at the time was what I didn't know I, you see someone every day you don't realize that they've suddenly put on four stone which was the case um so now I, I kind of have it in mind but then we were also talking about the fact that my dad's also given me a weight complex uh, which is now passing on to my sister and how do you how do you distinguish between what is your own prejudice and what is actually useful advice for a friend when it comes to their weight or health or anything. So I'm really shocked by this. I'm sort of mildly shocked by anyone telling Kirsten Dunst to lose some weight, which is just bizarre. Um, but also there was another story that came out this week or last week about uh, a bride in <coughs> the US. Sorry, US listeners, but you do take the bride thing quite seriously. Um, and asking her bridesmaids to lose weight. In fact, sending them a diet plan so they could all lose between 10 and 24 pounds um, for her wedding because she wanted them to look, quotes, at their best in her wedding. And I was just absolutely horrified by that because surely the whole point of friendship is that you love your friends as they are and you embrace them as they are. And this whole weight society that we live in where we judge and feel people are less beautiful less attractive worth less because of their size is disgusting i hate it emma what yeah, do you think I, I think unless if my friend was constantly having a conversation with me if I, a friend of mine has put on weight i would not say anything it's not my like i'm not interested i'm like if that's what they want to do that's their life they live the life they want to live it i certainly don't feel accountable for telling my friends if they've put on weight or even if they've lost weight but i think if somebody was constantly having a conversation with me of i don't feel well or i can't do this or every time i go into the shop i can't buy the clothes i want to wear then i would go well you know because maybe you should think about losing some weight if that was the solution to the problem but the solution like yeah it's not like I just wouldn't you do sent it. me to your nutritionist 
Yeah, that's because you felt so, unwell. I, yeah, had a jippy tummy. I didn't like, think to myself, think, oh, Natalie's put on weight. She should see a nutritionist. You were unwell because <laughs> of, you know, how you were feeling and how you were eating. And like that was a that was a solution. And that didn't come from a, I think you've put on weight. You need to see a nutritionist. But what is interesting, though, is that I think particularly for women in our society, losing weight is seen almost as a kind of an achievement so an when accolade, we see some yeah. an accolade exactly it we is see quite some, an achievement say, though it's really hard <laughs> it is really hard <laughs> to be honest it is really hard but we see someone we say oh you look so well have you lost weight I so that's the only thing about them that could be making why when are we going to start saying to people you look so well are you getting laid like, <laughs> why is that not the question <laughs> I think it's a I'm new gonna, question yeah, I'm going to use that from now on yeah. you've got that glow yeah <laughs> something you want yeah so our final story for this week is the one that really has gripped me all week and I've been texting the girls about it, I've been tweeting about it because I haven't been able to just stop thinking about this story and it is the BBC programme Three Girls that aired on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this week and it was a dramatisation about the um, story of sexual abuse of young girls in Rochdale uh, that came out in the press a few years ago. And it was an abuse ring um, by Asian men who were targeting young white girls and the whole cover-up that went on within the police and justice system behind it. It is hard watching. Um, I had to actually watch it with a glass of whiskey because it was almost too much for me to watch otherwise. But it is incredible and I do encourage you all to watch it. So I was obviously completely kind of obsessed with this this week. And then on top of that... Yesterday, Ched Evans, the footballer who um, was originally convicted of raping a girl and then subsequently had that conviction overturned, came out with a comment in the press about why, if you are a woman, you should be careful of what you are drinking because there are, quotes genuine rapists out there who are predators. And it was almost, it was the moment when I just lost the plot because I am so angry and appalled at our society which consistently puts the blame for a rape culture on Mm -hmm. young women and fails to believe them Mm -hmm. those girls in Rochdale were not believed for years and years and years because we assume that rape culture is not a thing that can possibly come into our culture in Britain in the 21st century and in fact it is there everywhere so when you you were messaging about this and I was like I can't watch it it's too disturbing and um, we were talking about whether or not we should discuss it. My question back to you was, what do we do? Because that's where I then get sort of emotional and, and angry. It's like, what can you actually do? Because if someone said this to me, male or female, I would just believe them. I would always take the belief first. But then, you know, is it a kink in the system? What is it? What can we do to change it so it never happens again? And every woman that feels like she's been treated inappropriately or that says she's been abused or raped, it, it, you just, you know what to do and you know how to act. I don't, to, to add to this, did you see the Snapchat, um, Bristol University? Uh, they have released, uh, and one of the editors of the student magazine at Bristol University has released a series of Snapchat videos of girls that have been raped or sexually assaulted at the university. One girl said she's been raped three times by boys or, or men that she liked or loved. One girl said she was uh, appropriately harassed by a, a boy that she was walking home because he was drunk. But in all of these cases, they were not believed. And I was like, why? Why? Why is the automatic think the place that we go to is to not believe them? What can we do? Yeah, there was one part. I haven't seen all of it. I saw part of the first series. There was one scene that really... Uh, upset me but I was like this is basically a summary of what the culture is where the policeman was interviewing one of the young girls and she'd reported the rape and he was asking her whether she'd had sex before and because she'd had sex with other people before that was a that was going against her in terms of how she's believed and that's the thing isn't it if you are you know if you are a promiscuous woman then you would be doubted they would look at your sexual history and it's like it has nothing to do but you know what even that I find is like the word promiscuous we only use that about women you know we never use that about men and this culture around women and sex and how we treat it and how we believe young girls is just it has to change and we have to do something about it and hopefully we're going to talk to our guests 
guest, Eleanor Mills, who's going to be joining us in our next session. She's the editorial director of the Sunday Times about this and other issues and how we cover them. Um, but if you have a view on it, if you want to share that view with us, do make sure you find us on social media on Twitter at Badass Women's Hour, HR at Badass Women's Hour, on all the other social medias with the same handle. And we will be here again just after this break. Badass Women's Hour with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour. Three women, one hour, all the opinions we can muster and a whole load of badass here on Talk Radio. I'm Harriet Minter and I'm joined by my co-hosts Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. And this week we are also joined by Eleanor Mills, Editorial Director of the Sunday Times. Welcome, Eleanor. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you. So um, just before you arrived, we were talking about the BBC drama Three Girls this week and the Rochdale sex abuse case, which I know that you covered Yes. Well, I was uh, working as editor of the Saturday Times when Andrew Norfolk, who was the journalist who broke it, um, first started writing some of those stories. And what did you, when you first started publishing those stories, you got a lot of backlash from it, didn't you? What was the response? Well, a lot of people said that we shouldn't be covering any of those stories at all, that it was really, that it was racist to be reporting that Asian men were abusing these white girls. And because of the racial aspect, we shouldn't be talking about it. It was bad for community relations. But what really shocked me about it was the attitude of the authorities, the police and some of the social workers, which were, even though these girls were only 14, these were their lifestyle choices, that they were bad girls who were choosing to be sleeping with these men and they were they were kind of making choices about their lives whereas the reality is they're 14 they're mm. being raped by yeah. older men they cannot consent mm-hmm. and that seemed to get completely lost in the care system and how they thought about these girls and I think that goes really to the heart of the problem so I think it was so um it was so kind of interesting but also traumatizing to me to to see on the show how they were treated and the response that was given to them and it feels like this is actually a lot of the response that goes to women in all cases of rape from whatever age upwards and particularly looking at some some of the Chad Evans comments this week and just how we talk about rape in the media in general do you think the media has a responsibility to really think about how it reports these things and the language it uses around them. Oh, I think totally. I think one of the things I go on about a lot as a female executive on, on newspaper, of which there aren't that many, mm. is how important it is to have women making decisions at the top of newspapers in terms of the way these kinds of things are covered. Because mm-hmm. unless you have a properly female view on the news and a take, you get what what gets recycled is a kind of stale, pale, male, old bloke, old-fashioned, chauvinistic view of what women are and what they should be, and particularly how young women should behave or any women should behave around sex. I completely agree with what you were saying earlier. Why are women seen as promiscuous and men seen as studs? I go into schools a lot and talk to young women, and that to all that ancient sexual divide is still there and we're never going to get anywhere as women as feminists until there's an equality around everyone being able to have as much sex as they want so, yeah. but moving on from the the sex point how are we doing in journalism because we uh, had a, a slide the other day that said um, in terms of shows where it's just women talking to women that's only four percent of all radio uh, output how, how are we doing in, in newspapers is it any better are there women at the top Well, there are some. I'm the chair of women in journalism and we do a survey uh, every few years and looking at how many bylines there are in the papers by women. And actually that looks pretty static or if not actually kind of getting worse, which is always quite depressing. Mm. I would say certainly where I I work at the Sunday Times, I'm the editorial director. I edit the magazine. I've edited the comment pages. I used to edit the Saturday Times. Um, We have a deputy editor called Sarah Baxter, who's another Mm. woman. Uh, We have a female news editor now. And we're we're getting there. I mean, something I've been banging the drum about a lot. That's not necessarily the case in other places, there's only and there's only one female editor of a um, national broadsheet. Who's mm. Kath Finer at the Guardian? Yeah, my former boss. Former boss, indeed. So, uh, but it's more than that. It's it's really who makes the decisions, who puts the pages together, yeah. and what I really notice as an executive over many years is you sit in conference. There are lots of stories on the list, and I look at them. I go, okay, well, there are a few stories here about women, but they're all victims or they're yeah. arm candy. Where are the women with agency? Where are the yes. women doing things in their own right and as editor of the magazine if you look at the sunday times magazine you'll see lots of stories about women with agency doing their thing i've got two girls 14 and 11 and it's incredibly important to me that they should look at the things i've produced and see the kind of women they might want to be or the kind of things that they might do and we have to model those for younger women there's the old obama thing you can't be what you can't see yeah i think it's really important and you have obviously now a, a very kind of powerful and influential job in journalism but where did you start where did you come in uh well 
well, I always wanted to write and I've always been quite outspoken. I think all journalists have a kind of real yen to be heard. So when I was a kid, my dad, when people came to have supper, would always say, darling, don't make any remarks. Because <laughs> I, I had a great tendency to say the thing that really shouldn't be said. So I've always been famous for making my remarks. And I now joke with him that I've made a career out of making <laughs> remarks. Um, I went to Oxford University and I studied English literature and language and I wrote a lot there and I always wanted to write. And then I came out and I did some kind of work experience around the place. And I worked for a magazine called Tank World, the world's premier bulk liquid transportation publication. Glamorous. <laughs> yes. Glamorous job. Yeah. Oh, it was glamorous. I, we used to write about, I used to have to write 2,000 words about the kind of um, ladders that go up the side of tank containers. Oh, oh, it was thrilling. Riveting. <laughs> yeah, but yes. I, I got out of that quite quickly and I got onto the Observer and I was just very enthusiastic. I was always, mm. please let me do this. Please let me do this. I've got, I've got an idea. I've got another idea. I've got another idea. And I just kind of kept going. And I think if you're, you're enthusiastic and you're full of ideas and you keep going then you can get there and I always say to young women don't be put off if people say no to mm. an idea they're not rejecting you they're saying no to the idea yeah. have another one yeah. and that I think that's really important that you don't take rejection personally particularly in journalism that was going to be one of my questions actually Eleanor in terms of like you know you've made it to a really like senior position and you're quite kind of a lone woman there what have you learned about getting to that position navigating a very masculine environment is there anything that you can share with our listeners in terms of like things that you really learned to get you at the kind of the top of your game speak up uh, don't always expect to be liked mm-hmm. uh, be very good at your job always go the extra mile always make that extra phone call uh, I don't frighten easily and if you are scared, never show it. Mm-hmm. I think it's another thing. Find, you know, have some people that you do trust who you can talk about, but never let them see the whites of your eyes. You know, <laughs> don't never show that you're scared. And if you're with people who are kind of a bit bullying or it's a bit kind of a, an aggressive kind of atmosphere, just tough it out. I think, and and speak up for yourself. Don't assume that your ideas aren't as valid as anyone else's because they absolutely are. So on that point, we had one of the stories that we were going to discuss was uh, an article uh, in a digital magazine talking about um, mean bosses. Yeah. And I sort of started shouting, no, we are not covering this because <laughs> the first line said, so, so, you know, you're 22 and you're cowering, the, cowering in the corner because your boss is X. I was like, that is what that's the vision that we're instilling in the minds of young women coming through that. It's okay to do that, first of all, but that is the reality of the world of work. And it's not, I never experienced that. And I don't want to start putting that out there as a, as a, a, a real version of every single workplace, because I think we have to go in that bit more bold, that bit more badass. How do you cultivate that when it's your first job out of journalism school, or you just want to write and you're, you're writing and sending editors ideas? How do you be bold and, and badass? Uh, I think you have to be—you have to be good. You've got to have, your ideas have got to be you know, really good. You've got to have lots of them. Yeah. You've got to not take rejection personally. Um, I think I think you have to stand up for yourself. I think also, but what I find with millennials, you're not going to like me for this, <laughs> is that they can come in being a bit entitled. It's like, well, I've been to journalism <laughs> school, um, and now I'm going to be writing the front page. And you're like, oh, it doesn't actually work like that. And when you say, uh, can you go and photocopy this or maybe do me a bit of research, they look slightly affronted. And certainly one of the ways that I got on, they say, Eleanor Mills, no, no job too, li- you know, too little or too large. Mm. So whether you're being asked to go and make the tea or being sent off on a big assignment, be equally enthusiastic and kind of and nice about it yeah. that there's that they come I, I really hate young people who come in with a real attitude that they know it all yeah so I think that that's something to to watch out for do you think that for people who are kind of more seasoned in their career is there also an argument because media is changing so much and has just even in the 15 years I've been it has changed completely already that you need to be really smart about what's new and what's coming up and what new skills you need because I know you've just launched a podcast haven't you yeah well, so I've been learning so yeah we just launched a, launched a podcast which I must say is really fun I quite like myself as John Humphreys <laughs> <laughs> quite fancy myself as that uh, so I know of course everything you do you have to keep changing you keep have to keep learning you have to keep up um, but I think you also have to remember what you what you know and I always say to people that you've probably got got five great stories inside your head which I don't know about because you're coming in with a completely different perspective and so I'm a great believer in kind of cultivating what you know what's going on in your network because really all journalism is local Mm. and if it's really interesting to you and that's what all your friends are talking about then that's probably worth a piece and as an editor you're sitting there I've got this magazine to fill newspaper to fill I need ideas I need new stuff that's going on I read stuff all the time but you don't necessarily know so someone who comes in and goes I bet you don't know 
about this, this, this and this. I'm going to be going, great, you write that for me, love. What's the best thing you've ever written? What's your favourite piece? Ooh. Um, well, they're, 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 uh, the thing I care about most, probably, is I was one of the first people to start writing about internet pornography. Mm. And I wrote a piece back in about 1990, I don't know, a long time ago now more than 10 years ago about um, internet porn and the effect that it was having on young people and their relationships it was on the cover of the magazine it was called Generation Triple X and that was the first time that uh, politicians started talking about parental controls on yeah. on and I was saying why is it we have a 9pm watershed we have 18 certificates for movies and yet you, two clicks of a mouse you can be seeing a smorgasbord of sex which you wouldn't even have found in the most extreme Soho sex shops and I, I argued that that was a real problem which I think we've really increasingly seen it is that there's been a, as women have become more liberated more empowered there's more legislation underneath there's this awful backlash of pornography undermining all the things that we do because because and boys have seen tons of it before they've ever even held a real girl's hand mm. and I think that how that's conditioning a whole generation of men to think about women and girls and then their expectations from sex I think it's bad for the boys as well as for the girls but as the mother of a 14 year old mm. and 11 year old girl that absolutely terrifies me so I think that the work I did around that I feel really proud of because I think it really has shifted the dial and made people think about it it got it onto the front page of the Sunday Times yeah. I talked to David Cameron about it when he was minister i mean i really care about that and i think it really made a difference so i know that's one of the issues that most worries a lot of my friends who are mothers and the thing they kind of don't know how to talk to their children about sort of internet pornography consent because you have to do it at such a young age what have you learned and kind of what have you put in with your children and what do you think we should be doing about it well I think you have to start, I think it's right you have to start talking about them young and I think you have to start talking to them young about their bodies so maybe there are bits of your body's body which are a bit private that you don't kind of maybe show to everyone that nobody does anything to your body that you don't like that you haven't consented to that, that there are different kinds of touch it's some cuddle you know some cuddles are fine but if at all at any point you feel uncomfortable about something then you stop that you have an absolute right over what happens to your body and I think you can't start saying that to children young enough yeah um, and then I also think it's important to put relationships into a context of love and connection and you, you know it's fine to to do kind of whatever you know really whatever you want I'm very unprudish but I want it to be done in a context of you care about the person that this is a, a kind of something special that sex is a very sex is a special kind of reverent act what I was really um, impressed by my husband I discovered had talked to my old daughter about this he's he had he really very definitely sees sex as a special thing and he, he was talking about that to my 14 year old and I know that that sunk in with her probably miles more than anything that I've said that the idea that her dad a man was saying sex mm. is a special thing it's not to be thrown around it's not to be entered into lightly mm. it's an it's an important connection between human beings and I don't think we talk to our children enough about that and hopefully if they grow up with a sense that sex is not something that hurts it's something that's meant to be fun for everyone girls also mm -hmm. have a right to reciprocal pleasure and to their own orgasms and that you talk about that with them quite openly I think you have to kind of set a thing so then when some ma some horrible man comes to them and wants them to do something that they don't like or they're uncomfortable with they've got the immediate tools to go no this goes against everything I've ever been told and I'm yeah. not going to put up with it Fabulous, yes. More rights to orgasms is basically <laughs> the point I'm taking from this. Uh, Eleanor, thank you so much. I think you're staying with us for our badass balls ups, that's right. right. Fabulous. Yep. Giving us your wisdom. That is our next section, which is coming up. We'll be answering your questions, the problems that are getting to you that you want our help and advice and wisdom with uh, to be honest we're not that wise but we do try <laughs> and that's what really matters and of course if you ever want to tweet us your problems or tell us you can on our twitter which is at badass women's hour hr at badass women's hour all on all the other socials as well that's coming up next badass women's hour with harriet mincer natalie campbell and emma sexton on talk radio many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. She'll get you talking. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour. Three women, one hour, all the opinions we can muster and a whole load of badass here on Talk Radio. I'm Harriet Minter and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Emma Sexton and Natalie Gamble. And this week we're also joined by Eleanor Mills, Editorial Director of The Sunday Times. This section, as ever, is our Badass Balls Ups, where we try and use our combined nearly 100 years of wisdom to help you with your problems. We really try. Um, So maybe this week will be better. Who knows? Uh, But Nat, first up, what is our problem this week? So our problem this week comes from Karen and she sent us a tweet saying, I'd love to know how you hold yourselves accountable and ensure you meet your goals. Do you have any accountability partners? And when we said this, our producer was like, what? What's an accountability partner? And we were like, well. (laughs) Um, And so an accountability partner is someone that you, you work with or you share your goals and ideas with, basically a mate. And they come back to you and say, have you done it? When are you going to do it? How's it going? And they're that thorn, the pain in your side. That, that means you get that thing done when realistically no one else is breathing down your neck to make it happen. So, I mean, Nat, you are a brilliant accountability partner, right? So <laughs> Nat texts me about every three days to say, have you finished the book proposal yet? And I just ignore the text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. But she comes back again. And that is what you need sometimes to get things done. So I think it is important to have someone who can chivy at you, but you have to have that relationship where it's not going to feel like they're nagging, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. Eleanor, how do you get stuff done? God, that sounds absolutely terrifying. Oh, well, I have a boss and I also have, <laughs> and I have lots of deadlines. Yeah. So I, I, I have to. But I do my per- more personal stuff. I keep a list on my phone of the things that I really have to do. I've been having my house done up. And so it's a nightmarish long list of things that have to be done. And I look at it and I go, I'm going to try. I'll try and knock a few of those things off today. Um, and I, I, but I also have a husband and I have children who also give me grief if I haven't done things that I'm supposed to do. So I think maybe... <laughs> That sounds more like you need an accountability partner if you're maybe younger and you don't have a direct boss. If you're kind of hemmed in by kids, family, boss at work, you don't really have any wiggle room at all. (laughs) Somebody's always watching you. Ems, do you do this? No, well, I've never... I mean, obviously I go to uh, Natalie's dinners where we sort of do accountability, but I don't have anybody for accountability and I just don't feel like I need that. I'm quite self-motivated and I don't really understand it. Like, I don't need somebody to tell me to do something when if I've decided I'm going to do something then I just make it happen but you're very driven and you're very organized I've I've I find you, you set your own goals and you make them happen yeah I'm yeah I've worked very hard on my psychology to make sure that I get stuff done and that's about I focus on you know what am I going to get from achieving that thing so mm-hmm. I focus not on the pain it might be causing me right now to do it I focus on the how I'm going to feel when that's done and that certainly helps me get it done so if you're not an Emma here is my <laughs> advice <laughs> uh, so we have a dinner um, we have one, two dinners a year, let's say. And at that dinner, you put your whatever it is you're going to achieve out into the room. And everyone else in that room is there to hold you to account. So by the time you come back in six months time, they're going to say, so what happened with that idea, that book proposal, that thing? And you need to come up with something. And it's fine to say I didn't do it or it's changed. But know that you're going to be asked because that holds it in mind. But I also have a friend and we uh, set each other uh, goals. So on a Monday we share we share our individual goals and set each other goals and then we check in on a Friday wow. and then we do this thing called one thing so one thing by 10am and that one thing could be rest it could be yoga it could be to send off a, off a proposal but I know that at 10am someone is going to send me a message saying they've done something what is my response 
And it means I'm more likely to stop faffing and making coffee and actually do the thing that I'm supposed to do. So that's my advice. Actually, this reminds me. So on my Instagram on a Sunday night, I do something called Five Things. And so I post on my Instagram every Sunday five things I'm going to do during the week. And you can come and post yours as well. And the following Sunday, I'll remind you and check in and see how you've gone. And I always try and be really honest as to how many I've done. Because sometimes I have like a week where I've achieved five out of five. Those are generally the weeks where it's like, <laughs> go on holiday. <laughs> Lie by the pool. Uh, <laughs> but like, usually I'm like, oh, maybe I've done two, maybe I've done three. Sometimes I have weeks where I've done none. But actually there's something about having a kind of level of public accountability where you're like, actually... I have to hold my hands up and say this mm. has not been a week where I've achieved it and maybe it's because actually I didn't want to do that stuff mm. or I've achieved something better or I just needed a week off but there's something about being able to look at it and refresh which I think is helpful uh, Emma what's your question for the week uh, so I've got quite a good que- interesting question this week it comes from one of our flock members she's just set up a, a business and uh, she's very focused on what she wants to get she needs to get some clients but she's very focused on I want a retained I want two retained clients paying me X amount of day rate twice a week and she was just getting quite frustrated that she wasn't getting to the retained clients and I had a chat to her and there was a, kind of a bit of a misunderstanding about the process of getting to retained clients and equally much as you might want that as a startup business so I thought it's quite an interesting problem to share in terms of going from almost like zero so to a hundred just for people that don't have their own business what is a retained client oh, so a retained client is basically somebody that you have a contract with who is going to be paying you regularly an agreed amount of time every month and retained clients are really good for businesses because then you know how much you know revenue you've got coming in it can be really good to like help you build your business because it can kind of cover your costs I mean there's pros and cons but as a safety security a lot of client a lot of businesses try and get those retained client so I can totally see her motivation for getting that that you know there's a lot of insecurity around money um so I just wanted to put it to there to you guys and what and what you know you've all got your clients Mm -hmm. how you've gone from zero clients to retained clients so I'm going to say don't buy into the bull crap you read stuff and everyone's like get the numbers no decide to deliver a brilliant service and the retained clients will come. But just focus on refining exactly what it is you do, why you're different, why you're brilliant. And six years will have passed and those clients will still be with you. That's how we built a very good company. The clients we had on day one are the clients that I had in January. Most people know I'm on sabbatical now. And I didn't set out to get retained clients. I just wanted to do a brilliant job. And I think the distraction comes when you're sitting there looking at spreadsheets being like, right, I must have five of this client paying X because that's what you focus on. You don't focus on doing brilliant work or selling brilliant work. I think the other thing is to look for clients that actually want you to go and work for them full time. I, I love that when people are like, do you want to come and work for me? I'm like, no, I don't. But what I will do, <laughs> so I'll come in and do a day a month or two days a month mm. or we can have an agreed thing. And I think um, also always ask for more than you think you're going to get, right? So the reason I have um, I have a column in Psychology's magazine and the reason I have that column is because I said, I'd really like to have a column thinking they'll give me a feature. Mm. And they were like, that's a great idea. Tell us what that could be and we'll have a look at it. And so actually sometimes if you show people what the advantages are and what they could get... Mm they might just be thinking one off at that point but they'll come back to it Eleanor you must work with a lot of freelancers how do you find people that you want to work with again and again what are the attributes they'll have well I think it's brilliant you always need people who over deliver mm. um, I like people who come to me going here's here's five fantastic ideas I can do this and this I've already got this set up we can do this picture so I think that's totally right you don't want to think if someone came to me and said I want you to give me five, a, a guaranteed five features over the next few months I go well you know who are you what's this entitlement we were yeah. talking about that earlier but if they come to me and they go I've got these three ideas I think you'll love um, and I might go okay well do me the first one if it's really good I'll go back to them because of course we all need people to we need people to write things I need ideas I need them to be good but it's really proving over and over again that you're really good you'll deliver when you said you will that it'll be it'll be excellent rather and I think that's totally right rather than going it sign up for five features then before before I know it, I may have had 12 features off them or given them a job even but it's it's definitely showing saying look this is what I can do for you it's going to be brilliant not I need this you know yeah. that neediness is always a turn off so my question this week actually comes from a friend who one of her friends is getting married and she's obviously very excited that this friend is getting married they're quite close they've been friends for a long time and she knows that the question is coming she knows the will you be my bridesmaid question is looming on the horizon 
But bless my friend, she has been a bridesmaid nine times and she is so over it. (laughs) She does not want to do it again. How can she get out of this without upsetting her friend? Is there a way? Eleanor, what do you think? Well, I've had a similar thing on being a godparent mm. because I'm, you know, quite a successful lady and um, everyone wants work experience for their child at some point down the line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not playing my own trumpet, but I've got, I have, I'm asked to be a godparent a lot yeah. and I've already got, I got six or eight godchildren and to be honest, it's a bit of a pain in the arse. You've got to buy them a present. <laughs> I'm a busy lady. I kind of quite often forget. So I, I really, you know, I'm kind of full up as far as, as, far yeah. as godchildren are concerned. And so when I, when I was asked recently by a really good friend she said look will you be a godparent and I just looked and I said I'm really sorry Uh, I love you I'm sure your kid's going to be fab but I've just got too many godchildren already it's not that I don't love you but honestly ask someone else because you're going to get a better godparent service you know I'm really great you know I'm really touched that you asked me I really love you but honestly no I like that because actually she could turn and take that and be like, I would really love to be a friend, but you know what? I've been a bridesmaid so, time, so many times. I feel like I might try and take over and it wouldn't be about you. <laughs> it should be about you for this wedding. Find somebody who's going to really relish the experience. Yeah, I, I think it needs to be special. So she just needs to say, look, I've done it so many times. I really love you. I want you to have a special wedding and I don't think I can really do it wholeheartedly. And then you're saying, I really appreciate being asked, but I just can't do it again. Love that. Thank you. I think it's important to be honest. I really do. I think so. Now, what would you do? Would you, would you do it or would you just say no? Okay, so first of all, they'd get the face. <laughs> and then I'd just say no. My yeah. friends know me. I'm just like, no. no. But what if it was going to make them really happy? No. No. <laughs> Will it make me happy? No. no. So the answer is no. And it won't make them happy if you're doing it thinking, oh, crikey, yeah. this is the 10th time I've been a brides- bridesmaid. Because they'll feel that. And also, I think this whole bridezilla kind of bridesmaid thing, I mean, yeah. you guys, you really go for that wedding thing. I got oh. married in a registry office when I was six months pregnant. I didn't have a bridesmaid. I didn't even have any flowers. <laughs> I wore an old dress. And we had a really jolly time. We had two witnesses. Didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell only the rest of the family went on holiday for two weeks and I wanted to be married before my daughter arrived I really didn't want the fuss that's basically go. my ideal wedding <laughs> but this has been our badass balls up for this week we need to say a huge thank you to Eleanor Mills for joining us thank you so Yay! much Eleanor oh, thanks for having me. your new podcast if you want to listen to it what's it called oh, it's the Sunday Times magazine podcast and it's on um, iTunes and you can also get it from the Sunday Times magazine and this week it's brilliant it's all about Brian May talking about Freddie Mercury for the first time we've got oh. Some Brian May audios brought out a new book, and there's some really fab features on there. And we kind of talk about the background to the stories and what you don't hit, actually see in the magazine. So it's good fun. Amazing. Thank you very much. And um, coming up in our next section, we are looking at our backdated badass, which is a woman from history that you should absolutely know about. Um, this week's is a full activist and campaigner and did incredible things. So stay tuned for that. Badass Women's Hour with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour. Three women, one hour, all the opinions we can muster and a whole load of badass here on Talk Radio. I'm Harriet Minter and I'm joined by my co-hosts Emma Sexton and Natalie Campbell. And in this section we are talking about a backdated badass. That's a woman from history that you should really know more about. This week we're joined by Roshni Goyate, the co-founder of The Other Box, to talk about a woman who was part of the Strikers in Saris movement. Roshni, who are you talking about this week? This week, I'd love to talk about J.R.B.N. Desai, who uh, led the Grunwick strike in 1977, which was a workers' strike, one of the biggest of its kind, um, and it united workers across the country. And what was the strike for? It was to um, demand better working conditions for migrant workers. So um, in the Grunwick factory in the 70s, um, migrant workers were working in just like terrible conditions um, and Jaya Bendesai was one of the first to sort of um, stand up and refuse those working conditions and poor pay. Um, what was she striking for? Um, I think there was this sense, so, um, you know, there was immigrants were invited in from the Commonwealth in the UK um, as cheap labour, basically, through the 50s, 60s and 70s. And so they were being exploited by factories um, who needed sort of high production at low um, cost. Um, So there was um, a sense of 
workers being exploited for low pay, but also being made to work in terrible working conditions. Um, and I think that summer in particular, the, it was just really hot and uh, women, especially migrant women, were being made to, to work in unbearably hot conditions. Um, and for Jaya Bendesai, it became really clear that, clear that they were being exploited in front of their very faces, openly so, um, and used as sort of disposable labour, and she'd had enough of it. And I love this um, quote that she apparently said to her line manager when he compared her and her colleagues to, quotes chattering monkeys. And she said, what yeah. you're running here is not a factory, it's a zoo. But in a zoo, there are many types of animals. Some are monkeys who dance on your fingertips. Others are lions who can bite your head off. We are the lions, Mr. Manager. She sounds ferocious. I love her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was a total badass and, and did kind of become the, the front of the, the strikers' movement. Um, you know, she was courageous and um, articulate and kind of pushed against the stereotype, I guess, mm-hmm. of, um, sort of docile um, Asian women who just do what they're told and never fight back. So I really love that quote, and it has sort of become the yeah the big famous quote of the movement from her. Um, there's that image of, of the lion or the lioness. Apparently, she was only four foot eleven. Wow. So the idea that she she was a sort of tiny lady with a big voice and a kind of big energy um, is just so compelling. And she she was born in in Gujarat in India, and then moved to well first to Tanzania and then to to Britain. Did she then live in Brent? Because I, I feel in, I'm from Brent, so I feel an affinity with her already. Yeah, I'm from Brent too, so I I do as Brent well. massive <laughs> up in the house, <laughs> northwest representative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so yeah, she lived in um, sorry, she lived in Dollis Hill and worked in around the Wilson and Dollis Hill area. Brilliant. Yeah. My mum actually uh, was also uh, one of the immigrant workers in that time. She was a bit younger, but um, so again, yeah, like you say, Natalie, I feel that affinity because um, her, I think her action directly affected my family too who who worked in factories in that area yeah. for decades same so i grew up in, in wilsdon and uh, so i can think of all, all of my friends mums um that used to work in the factories around that area and i'm, I'm sure she had an impact mm-hmm. on them so i really resonated this she yeah. is an amazing woman if there's a sort of energy or essence or something you would like us to take away that we can remember about Haroshni, what would that be Oh, that's a good question. There's so much that we could sort of say about her. I think one of the the biggest things is, I think it began as a movement for migrant workers and because she's an Asian woman, it began as a movement for Asian women being exploited. But eventually what it became was part of a much bigger movement across the country that united for the first time in history, in fact, united workers who were migrants, who were native you know english workers white non-white for the first time there was a unity and it drew crowds of tens of thousands of people to um to the picket lines so i think the image of jay ben Lesai not taking any more kind of t- take any more crap from managers um galvanizing an entire population of workers and creating a movement that kind of became you know for the next few years so um kind of tumultuous and got people speaking and and going to the picket lines i think that image is just amazing and inspiring fabulous thank you so much for joining us today rushdie um thank you for she, having me. we are definitely keeping her as one of our favorite backdated badasses hooray thank <laughs> you Uh, So we're coming towards the end of our show now, but as ever, we like to leave you with one thing that you can do to kind of live your life in a more badass way for the coming seven days. That is our badass principle of the week. So Nat, what is it this week? Our badass principle this week is be brilliant. I was going to say it is inspired uh, by the the conversation we were having earlier with Eleanor um, around work and, and what we do and how we approach things, approach things being brilliant first and everything else will follow. That feels like quite a lot of effort, though. What do we? <laughs> I'm just, I'm a bit hesitant about that. Like, mm. <laughs> what does it mean to be brilliant? Well, at, at work, if you know, if it's all about clients, find out what they want and over deliver on that service. If it's about friends, maybe spend this weekend just 
being all about them, maybe not. Spend this weekend <laughs> being all about you. Be brilliant to yourself. But it's, it's going over and above and doing what needs to be done to make your service and yourself shine. Emma, what does it mean for you? Well, initially I was like, uh, my imposter syndrome went, um, what does brilliant mean? How do I know if I'm being brilliant? And then I obviously put my badass hat on and I'm like, okay, well, of course, brilliant means going that extra mile, doing those little bits, that sort of tenacity. Because mm-hmm. actually, what's, there's that great quote, isn't there, that you, if you can't out-talent someone, you can definitely outwork them. And I think brilliance can really give you the edge. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think for me, brilliance is that shine that people give off when they know they've really achieved something, they've really put their heart and soul into it. And so they shine brighter than everyone around them. So that's, for me, what Be Brilliant is this week. This has been the Badass Women's Hour. We are here every week on Talk Radio. But if you want to talk to us in the meantime, do you know what you should do? You should find us on social media. On Twitter, at Badass Women's Hour, HR, at Badass Women's Hour. On Instagram or Facebook, at the same handle. Or you can talk to us personally, me, at Harriet Minter, Nat. At Nat D. Campbell. And Emma. At Emma Sexton. And we will be back here on Talk Radio, same place, same time, next week. Badass Women's Hour with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.